Hello and welcome to the first episode of the History Respawn podcast. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. This episode includes my interview with scholar John Moran Gonzalez about Red Dead Redemption. But before I talk about that interview, let me take a moment to introduce History Respawn and discuss the purpose of this podcast. History Respawn is a YouTube series in which historians consider historical video games. The series has covered a wide assortment of games including Papers, Please, Shogun 2, Tropico 5, and many titles in the Assassin's Creed series. Our goal with the series is to expose video game players to historical scholarship related to the games that they love. In addition, we hope to encourage historians and other scholars to consider video games as a medium to use in teaching, or perhaps as a means to share their research. Throughout the production of History Respawn on YouTube, we've received many requests from viewers to share our interviews with scholars in podcast form. This episode represents the first step in that process. We plan to debut a podcast version of all subsequent videos in the series from this point forward. In addition, we plan to re-release old interviews in the series as podcasts in the coming months. Along with these interviews, we plan to release discussion episodes featuring myself and my colleague John Harney. We hope to use these discussion podcasts as a way to talk generally about different topics related to history and to video games. We also intend to include guests on these episodes from inside and outside the Historical Academy. We're very excited to develop this podcast, and we hope you enjoy listening. You can find out more about History Respond on YouTube, as well as our website, historyrespond.com. You can also find us on Twitter, at History Respond, and on Facebook, at History Respond. If you like our work, please consider contributing to our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash history respond. Now, with those introductions out of the way, let me turn back to the topic of this episode, Red Dead Redemption. Red Dead is a game that I've been wanting to cover on History Respawn for a long time, and it's also one that we've, we've gotten a lot of requests from viewers about. When this game came out, there was a lot of coverage in games media comparing the depiction of the Old West in Red Dead Redemption to what it was like in real life. Uh, and given that fact, I didn't really want to repeat that media content uh, with this interview. And so instead, I, I tried to come up with a different way uh, to approach the game. Uh, and in particular, I wanted to discuss the game as a piece of genre fiction. And I also wanted to dig a little bit deeper into the game's depiction of race relations along the border uh, during the early 20th century. Uh, unfortunately, my desire to look at the game in these ways ended up making the search for a guest scholar really difficult. Uh, just to give you an insight, I recorded the video content for this episode in late 2014, uh, but I didn't end up recording the episode with a guest until early 2016. Uh, so quite a while uh, in between the capturing of video content and the actual recording of the episode. Uh, thankfully, I think I found the perfect guest for the episode with uh, John Moran Gonzalez uh, from UT Austin. And Professor Gonzalez caught my attention in late 2015 when I learned about his involvement with the Refusing to Forget project. Uh, which is something that's discussed in detail during this episode. And as a native Texan, this topic is extremely important to me, and I felt that it would also be of interest to viewers of History Respond, uh, because it's a topic that's not really discussed in public, uh, and certainly not in many textbooks of Texas history or on the history of the Old West. 
And I'm really happy with how this interview unfolded uh, because I think it goes a long way toward uh, complicating our views about the Old West and because it gives listeners an opportunity to revisit Red Dead, uh, a game which is still widely considered to be an all-time classic, uh, but unfortunately remains trapped on the previous console generation. It's a game that was never released on PC uh, and only came out on uh, the Xbox 360 and the PlayStation 3. Uh, We've had some hint recently that the game may appear on the Xbox One, uh, the new console generation, uh, thanks to Microsoft's backward compatibility program, but uh, that version has not been officially released yet. So until that point, uh, you can relive Red Dead through this interview. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to History Respond. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. Today's episode considers one of the most beloved and revered console games of all time, Red Dead Redemption. Developed by Rockstar, Red Dead takes place in a fictional western U.S. state along the Mexican border in 1911. The game follows the story of John Marston, a former outlaw who is being forced by the U.S. government to eliminate members of his old gang. During his journey in the American West of Mexico, Marston encounters a cast of Western archetypes, including snake oil salesmen, treasure hunters, lawmen, outlaws, and Mexican revolutionaries. With me to discuss this game is John Moran Gonzalez, a professor in the English department at the University of Texas at Austin. Professor Gonzalez is an expert on the history of American literature and culture, and is the recipient of major fellowships from the Mellon Foundation, the Ford Foundation, and the Woodrow Wilson National Foundation. He is a faculty affiliate of the Center for Mexican-American Studies at the University of Texas, and is also one of the leaders of the Refusing to Forget project. John, welcome to the show. Uh, Great to be here. John, Red Dead Redemption is a game with a historical setting, but it's a historical setting that is heavily influenced and informed by the American Western, a popular genre for both books and films. And it's difficult to play Red Dead and not be reminded of topics and themes from the books of Louis L'Amour and the spaghetti westerns of the 1960s. My question to you is, what makes the West such a popular setting for American fiction, and why has that popularity endured for so long? I think uh, to answer that question, we really have to go back to the early part of the uh, 19th century, or perhaps even earlier to the 18th century, where uh, the West in the uh, U.S. imagination has always been considered the land of opportunity, the, the place where uh, dreams can happen that are unrealizable uh, on the East Coast or in, in Britain before that. And so the kind of idea of the virgin land, as Henry Nash Smith uh, once had put it, was that, <clears throat> was that uh, whereas uh, the place where one lived was always kind of limited in the opportunities that were available because of uh, class uh, limits on class mobility and uh, that sort of thing. The West represented a space where uh, the, the, there was no so-called civilization, where there were no, as it were, artificial limits to where the, uh, the, 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 the natural abilities of an individual could be fully realized. And so 
from that from that era on, uh, and we're talking about the the annexation of what was called the Old Northwest, that is the territories we now know as the Midwest, uh, Michigan, Ohio, the Ohio Valley. Uh, ever since uh, that time, uh, the westward expansion uh, was synonymous with the opening up of opportunity uh, for the individual. And I think this got effectively nationalized or it became a national project uh, with, uh, in the 1840s when uh, um, uh, John Sullivan coined the term manifest destiny. And uh, ever since then, the idea of uh, the US as in search of a new frontier uh, of that new place where uh, the, the self, the individual could be fully realized in the absence of artificial constraints such as social convention or government interference, uh, I think remains a powerful narrative to this day. Interesting. Uh, well, one of the defining features of American Westerns is the presence of violence. And Red Dead Redemption is no exception to this. Uh, players in Red Dead participate in duels, shootouts, and pitched battles. My question is, does the presence of violence in Westerns like Red Dead reflect the reality of life in the West during the 19th and early 20th centuries? Well, uh, certainly, I mean, there, there are a couple of aspects to that. I think one of them is that there is some truth to the idea that uh, the mechanisms of civil society and of law enforcement in particular were in fact weaker. You know, in a certain, there's a real sense in which uh, the idea of sovereignty, uh, that is of national sovereignty and authority and therefore power uh, was actually much, uh, much less complete than I, I think we tend to believe uh, in that there were, there were large areas, instead of thinking of sovereignty as kind of in power and authority uh, in, as, as a kind of, um, uh, let's see, a sheet or like a, like a, uh, like a, like a impermeable cover, uh, it really was kind of uh, full of, it was like patches and holes. And there were, these patches and holes in sovereignty were exploited by all kinds of people. I mean, you know, certainly outlaws and smugglers and, you know, folks like that come to mind. But I think, you know, certainly Native Americans used and challenged the kind of, you know, sovereignty of, of the, the United States in this, in this era, where effectively the United States, you know, in name had sovereignty over this territory, but in reality did not control it. And so I think various groups with various widely varying agendas took advantage of this. And certainly the, the violence or the ability to inflict uh, violence uh, in a, in a <laughs> uh, with fewer repercussions was, was certainly an element uh, of everyday life here. On the other hand, I'm not sure that the, the, the kind of uh, uh, the depiction of like constant bloodbaths 
you know, as, as depicted in the game was, was quite the reality. I think those, uh, I think were uh, um, much rarer uh, than, uh, than the game might have us believe. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up the issue of sovereignty because you definitely get a sense from the game that there are competing sovereignties, you know, whether it's uh, the United States government moving in, whether it's the Mexican national government or the Mexican rebels or also uh, Native American groups. Uh, And, you know, your player character is kind of caught in the middle uh, of all of these things as they develop. That's right. That's right. I mean, and certainly the... uh the the border borderlands uh have always been an area where that sovereignty has been of, of both nations of both mexico and the united states has been uh at times re- quite tenuous and uh one only need think of the terms of the treaty of guadalupe hidalgo in 1848 at the end of the us mexican war that established the boundaries to sum that up the terms of it the United States essentially, after occupying uh, much of Mexico, forced Mexico to cede uh, its northern half to the United States. And these are the states that now make up what we call the U.S. Southwest. But one of the interesting provisions of that uh, treaty was uh, that the United States would, uh, would patrol uh, the border. The interesting thing was that it wasn't about keeping Mexicans out of the United States. It was about keeping uh, Native American uh, tribal nations, such as the powerful Apache and Comanche, out of Mexico. And so there, that points to how uh, uh, Native American uh, groups were using the, the fluidity of sovereignty along the border to, you know, to their advantage. And uh, this task proved so impossible that in the 1854 Gadsden Purchase, uh, the United States renegotiated uh, that uh, provision of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo and basically dropped it It, because the United States could not control its own border uh, in that way. And... At that point, essentially from, uh, uh, you know, from 1848 through 1924, uh, the border was unregulated as far as the uh, passage of uh, people, uh, north or south. Uh, You know, it was essentially an open border. And sure, you had um, you had customs because, of course, officials on both sides were interested in collecting taxes on goods as they crossed the borders. Uh, and, you know, they might even charge a toll, uh, you know, to cross an international bridge or use a ferry. Um, but there was no checking of documents <laughs> for people. And uh, so this 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 meant that the border uh, up until the creation of the border patrol in 1924 uh, and the series of uh, uh, restrictive uh, immigration laws enacted at that point, the border was incredibly fluid, and therefore the ter- the sovereignty uh, and authority, state authority over the over those were actually quite um, quite limited at times. I think the game actually does a pretty good job of uh, depicting 
this freedom with which people in the borderlands felt with crossing national boundaries. Um, you know, for instance, your player character, John Monston, goes freely across the border, but so do other um, NPCs, non-player characters in the game. And uh, very often as you're traveling uh, throughout both countries, you'll notice uh, NPCs from America or NPCs from Mexico uh, going across the border, doing business uh, in other areas, uh, and, or maybe even just uh, riding around. Uh, and they do this without any real respect uh, for the river itself uh, as a boundary. Um, they seem perfectly free uh, to go uh, back and forth as they please. That That's right. And uh, really for generations uh, along uh, the border and certainly in the, along the Texas-Mexico border, the, the, the river meant nothing as far as a, as a divide. I mean, uh, families lived on both sides of the river and crossed back and forth. Business, of course, did the same. Uh, really, the, the, the border was, was not a border in the sense that we think of it today uh, until 1924. Right. So uh, you mentioned uh, several times so far the kind of relationship between Mexico and the United States at this time. And this game includes a depiction of the Mexican Revolution and what influence that had on Mexican-American relations at the time. Um, and uh, the main character, John Marston, goes on missions for both the rebels and the military leaders in Mexico. But uh, throughout the game, you're never really giving any context uh, for that revolution. Uh, and you're never really given an explanation as to what the stakes are for Mexico. So I'm wondering if you could provide our viewers with a brief background in the history and the course of the Mexican Revolution. Absolutely. Uh, really, the 30 years prior to uh, 1911 were crucial for this story because uh, in about uh, 1870, um, uh, Porfirio Diaz uh, became the essentially, well, president, but de facto dictator of Mexico. And he very much ruled uh, with an iron fist for uh, decades. Um, and it came, came to be, this era came to be known as the Porfiriato. And so uh, he, he also used his uh, both uh, secret police as well as the uh, uh, mounted uh, uh, rural police or the rurales to, uh, to effectively uh, squash any dissent. And a great deal of his project for the modernization of Mexico, as he saw it, was the importation of uh, European ideals of progress. And so he was, he was a great uh, fan of uh, French, uh, <laughs> French science uh, of that era. But he also acknowledged the kind of reality of, of uh, capital investment by the United States. So really, uh, and Great Britain as well. And so uh, he opened up the, uh, uh, the many, many of the heavy industries, especially in the uh, export-driven uh, sector, um, to U.S. and British capital. 
And so by the time of, by 1910, when the revolution started, uh, these foreign interests controlled a huge chunk of the, of the Mexican economy and the Mexican economic infrastructure. So uh, this resulted in the kind of average citizen uh, uh, in, in the countryside as well as uh, in the cities, uh, this created a great division of wealth, a great imbalance uh, in between the very wealthy and the very, very poor. And of course, indigenous communities in Mexico were, were even uh, marginalized further uh, uh, here. So, so basically the revolution, should be more properly thought of as a uh, civil war. Uh, it was a civil war. It was incredibly bloody. Uh, it lasted for a decade uh, and it cost, uh, there were about a million Mexicans who lost their lives in the revolution. Uh, as you can imagine, the country's economy was absolutely wrecked. And also it caused uh, a, nearly a million more uh, Mexicans to flee to the United States as war refugees. So really, this this uh, the the Mexican Revolution was was the origin of the first what we might think of as the first great wave of Mexican uh, migration to the United States. But they were not, as it were, primarily economic migrants in the way we might think of today they were war refugees, much more like the Syrian uh, war refugees today. Um, of course, it was uh, the, the enactment of the immigration reform laws and the creation of the Border Patrol in 1924 was actually in response to this uh, mass migration from Mexico, uh, am among other things, but it was a major factor in, in uh, the implementation of those laws. So, so I should also add that uh, revolutions or, or um, uh, revolts against Porfirio Diaz had been launched from the borderlands uh, for decades prior uh, to, uh, to 1910. So uh, in the early 1890s, uh, uh, Catarino Garza uh, launched uh, uh, a would-be revolutionary attempt from the borderlands region in South Texas. Uh, and there were other instances of, of uh, plotting and organizing and fundraising and arms smuggling uh, to overthrow the Mexican government from the, from the U.S. side. On the other hand, as you might imagine, uh, the U.S. and Mexican governments uh, very much saw eye to eye on, on the need to suppress uh, these uh, uprisings. And so the U.S. authorities often intervened at the behest of uh, Porfirio, Porfirio Diaz to arrest uh, and imprison uh, uh, would-be revolutionaries on the U.S. side. Mm, well, I... I don't find it surprising that the United States, given the context of the First World War uh, and then the beginnings of the, the Red Scare, uh, would want to participate with Mexico in putting down uh, a peasant revolution. 
Well, I, I think the realities of the revolution on the ground as it proceeded uh, did change the, the uh, foreign policy tactics of the United States as they saw that uh, Porfirio Diaz had, had actually pretty early on, I mean, so by, by 1911, had fled for France uh, and uh, various, uh, but the revolution continued uh, because there, there had been a counter a counter revolution uh, against uh, the, the, what had been the kind of middle-class reformist Francisco Madero uh, um, by one of Diaz's generals. And, uh, and then in turn, he was over, overthrown by uh, a coalition of, of revolutionary forces led by Emiliano Zapata in the southern states of Mexico. And then in the northern states, uh, uh, Francisco or Pancho Villa. And then in the central areas by uh, Venustiano uh, Carranza. And it was uh, Carranza who wound up being, uh, taking the de facto reins of government and eventually getting recognition by the United States as, as the legit, legitimate government of Mexico. Um, of course, he, he was assassinated <laughs> in his turn and uh, uh, Mexico did not achieve a kind of political stability until uh, uh, Obregón uh, assumed uh, uh, power. Certainly, uh, I, I, as I kind of hinted at before, the kind of uh, I, I, I really the 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 fighting sequences, uh, kind of in shootouts in the town and that sort of thing, uh, were were certainly part of it. But I mean, we have to remember these were, uh, you know, uh, there were there were large, there were at times quite large scale armies uh, using. Uh, uh, machine guns and uh, you know very you know very much the kind of uh, what would be the light uh, infantry weapons used in World War One. Uh, so uh, the but of course there were also um, you know the 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 use of uh, you know the use of the thirty thirty hunting rifle was was really common that that was that was quite. Uh, that that was quite widespread in Mexico, and interestingly enough, uh, uh, many, not all, but many of the weapons used in the Mexican Revolution were uh, were of U.S. manufacture. Um, some of them were were of uh, uh, German German design and uh, uh, you know subcontracted uh, a manufacture, but um, most many of the arms were were from the U.S. and and of course the ammunition. As you might imagine, as well. Um, well, and the revolutionaries are the so uh, uh, certainly, <laughs> you know, it's it's uh, the framing of 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 the re uh, revolutionaries as well as the uh, counter revolutionaries are, of course, within the context of the game. And so, you know, there's a way in which the the, the revolution itself is is kind of subordinated the issues that caused the revolution uh, and uh, the, 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 the reason, you know, in other words, the reason why people were fighting 
uh, are kind of subsumed into the narrative of gameplay. And uh, so we don't really get a, I think, a good sense of why this civil war was, was raging. Um, you just have this given of like, well, you know, people are shooting it out and uh, <laughs> uh, to, for control of some territory or something. And uh, uh, so in, in that sense, there's not really a kind of, uh, uh, it, it, it turns out to be a kind of um, a convenient setting for gameplay rather than, a, a, as it were, a kind of deep understanding of the historical conditions of the, of the revolution. Hmm. So I wanted to shift focus back for a moment to the topic of violence. And, you know, most American Westerns, uh, including Red Dead Redemption, they, they tend to focus on violence that's between outlaws and lawmen. Uh, but they rarely discuss violence perpetrated against marginalized groups. You are a leader of a project called Refusing to Forget, which is trying to call attention to one of these forgotten histories of violence in the American West during the time period in which Red Dead Redemption is set. I was wondering if you'd tell our viewers a bit more about this project. Well, the Refusing to Forget project, as you pointed out, is really about bringing to public consciousness uh, an event that occurred 100 years ago uh, in South Texas and other areas of Texas uh, that have been largely forgotten. And essentially what happened 100 years ago was there was a, uh, an armed uh, changing social and economic conditions uh, had uh, displaced uh, Tejano, uh, Tejanos or uh, uh, Texas Mexicans uh, from what had been their positions of land ownership and, uh, and, and, and citizenship privilege, right? Uh, you have to remember in the lower Rio Grande Valley of South Texas, life since 1848 up through the beginning of the 20th century had been very much as it had been before uh, uh, the change in national sovereignty. Uh, so this was one of those instances where, yes, you know, the U.S. was the, uh, you know, national sovereign of this area, but really the people of the region looked to Mexico for in its politics and economics and culture. And so in many ways, they were still indistinguishable from Mexicans, and they thought of themselves as Mexican. Uh, you know, when you talked about the capital of the nation or the capital, you didn't talk about DC, you talked about the EFE. And so, uh, and you know, and the peso was the common currency uh, of the region. You used dollars to pay your taxes, but you used pesos and everything else. And so um, uh, the thing was that uh, uh, unlike in other areas of the United States, uh, such as most of California or, or uh, with the possible exception of New Mexico, uh, Texas Mexicans in this area had not been relegated to second class status. Um, uh, they still held political power and economic power but the arrival of the railroad uh, 
into this region of South Texas in 1904 changed all that. And so there was a very rapid uh, transition from a ranching economy uh, controlled by Texas Mexicans to uh, 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 agribusiness uh, economy that was controlled by newcomer uh, Anglo Americans, mostly from the Midwest, uh, the US Midwest. And so uh, the, the newcomers, unlike previous uh, uh, migrants from the US to this part of the uh, border, uh, who had acculturated and become Mexicanized, um, these newcomers had no, um, no desire to do so. And uh, because they were bringing with them their, their beliefs in the racial inferiority of the largely mestizo or mixed blood uh, native, uh, native uh, indigenous and uh, European uh, uh, Mexican people. And so they very much, very, very quickly instituted uh, a version of segregation, of racial segregation that we, we might conveniently call Juan Crow. And so, of course, the, uh, the Tejanos or the Texas Mexicans were completely unused to this and, and completely insulted, as you might imagine. And uh, by in 1915, uh, had a group of displaced uh, rancheros uh, and other people, disaffected folks, um, basically started an armed uprising, a, a rebellion uh, in South Texas. Uh, and so you had groups of maybe 10 to 25 uh, uh, horsemen uh, riding around the S South Texas brush country um, attacking farms and uh, irrigation systems and automobiles. And in one case, they, uh, they uh, wrecked a train. And so uh, now the thing was, is that uh, this was in uh, uh, about from July through November of 1915. Um, and very quickly, the uh, local authorities, local law enforcement, and then the Texas Rangers came in to uh, put down uh, the uprising. The problem was that they very, they made it into a, a, um, a collective punishment of the Texas Mexican community of that area. So there were many, uh, many Texas Mexicans who really had nothing to do with these, uh, these raids who were, uh, uh, tortured uh, or killed uh, for no other reason than being a suspicious Mexican. Uh, and uh, in, in the kind of historical kind of uh, uh, trajectory of, of these uh, events, uh, this was really a kind of ethnic cleansing of the landed uh, political class of Texas Mexicans to make way for uh, Anglo Anglo Texan uh, ownership and control of the region. Uh, it also, of course, uh, meant uh, sending a message to the remaining uh, Mexican Texas Mexican population uh, that uh, 
well, that white supremacy was here to stay <laughs> in this region. And uh, so it's these events, the, the kind of extra legal, extrajudicial kind of killings uh, uh, of uh, a, a good number of Texas Mexicans of this community uh, that the Refusing to Forget project wants, wants to remember that there was essentially a race war uh, in South Texas at this time. Even the New York Times was calling it this. Uh, and it received widespread attention throughout the national media. And uh, essentially, the, the, the Texas Rangers served as a state-sanctioned uh, police force that was executing uh, innocent, uh, innocent people without due process of any kind. Uh, so it, it's, so it's, it's, it's uh, the end of the story, as it were, was, was in 1919, a, a state representative named J.T. Canales uh, initiated uh, an investigation of the activities of the Texas Rangers in the previous decade in the state legislature. And while there were, there was huge amounts of evidence and testimony collected, uh, but no uh, indictments or convictions of any Rangers occurred. However, it did put, it significantly downsized the Ranger force and it also significantly professionalized the Ranger force. So, and so in other words, it did a lot to kind of tampen down the worst of the, uh, uh, the worst practices. Not, not that it didn't continue to occur at, a, at another level, uh, but nonetheless, this was the first time that Texas Mexicans had been successful in using the mechanisms of the state to address the issue of state violence against their own community. So this, this prior to that, you know, for the Rangers, it was like anything goes, you know, they knew that they would never be prosecuted for, for doing this stuff. Um, but after that, it was kind of like, well, no, there's going to be, there are going to be consequences uh, for those kind of actions. Oh, that's that's interesting. And and speaking as a native Texan myself, I I'm ashamed to say that I didn't know anything about uh, this racial violence uh, during this time period. Um, uh, is there anywhere else that our viewers can go uh, to learn a bit more about refusing to forget and this history? Absolutely, we've got a website at refusing to forget altogether dot org, and uh, you can also uh, take a look at the exhibit. It's called Life and Death on the Border, 1910 to 1920, which is currently running through April 3rd, 2016 at the Bob Bullock uh, Texas State History Museum uh, here in Austin, Texas. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of History Respawn. Thank you so much to Professor Gonzalez for joining us on the show. Please tune in next month for another episode. 